Hello, everybody. Welcome to the first real episode of Hummus Tailgate Party. I'm your host, Thomas Jackson. We will be uh, recapping everything that happened in the off season and looking ahead to the fascinating week zero we have coming up here in a few days. Thanks for tagging along, and let's get this show on the road. So I didn't think a off-season recap and looking ahead to just a couple games on week zero would be too, too bad for my first episode until I sat down and started taking some notes on everything that's happened since early January when the 2020 season ended, and my God, it is a whole hell of a lot. So I guess we'll start by just going over a little timeline of everything that's happened in the off-season. I'm going to start off with going over the coaching carousel everyone that got fired at the end of last season, where they ended up, all the big schools that have new hires they're looking forward to this season. Then it was a relatively quiet spring, just the normal recruiting and stuff. All the big players kind of racked up like you would expect them to. I was going to get into more of that, but the more into the summer I got, the more notes filled up pages and pages. So we're going (laughs) to brush over recruiting for the time being and maybe get into that a little bit more during the season. Um, Then June, this summer, things really started to pick up. Uh, The college football playoff rumor got out, word got out that it was going to have an expansion in June. So that felt like pretty monster news, only to be completely upheaved three weeks later on July 1st by the NIL going into effect, which obviously caused just a tidal wave of deals and entertaining new sponsorships for players all over the country, not just in football, but college athletes in every sport, obviously. Then we had that to focus on for, what, about three or so weeks until we got to Texas and Oklahoma coming to the SEC. Uh, This story just had a huge progression today with the Big Ten, Pac-12, and ACC alliance. Hopefully they can find a better way to put that kind of a mouthful we'll get into all that later and lastly we'll end up with everybody's favorite topic going over everything that's happened with covid we'll try not to dwell on that for too too long but i mean there's still news coming out every single day that's totally relevant uh, this upcoming season so we'll kind of touch on what's happened in regard to that especially over the past few weeks ramping up for this current season so to begin with the coaching carousel that occurred at the end of the regular season in 2020 and kind of crept into the off season a little bit, we'll just go over all the notable Power 5 schools that have uh, coaching changes since last year. So most of them actually that I'm going to talk about came from the SEC. The other really big notable one was Texas letting go of Tom Herman, of course, getting Sark. But uh, to start off with, Auburn... Letting go of Gus Malzahn, who ended up at Central Florida. They got Brian Harson from Boise State, obviously. This being so close to the Auburn program through all my friends and people I grew up with. This was, you know, it, it kind of felt like a long time coming. It was odd just because of how Gus could pull the miracle Novembers once every three or four years, seemingly just in time to save his job for another big contract extension. They had finally had enough after the 2020 season. A couple, you know, pretty bad losses along the way kind of did them in. Just the lack of progress from the offense. They just really needed a special guy to run that thing. And 
even though I think Bo Nix could be pretty good in a more normal system. It just wasn't happening when you have to have a guy like Cam or Nick Marshall to really make that engine turn. So they got Brian Harson from Boise State. Uh, pretty off-the-wall hire. I don't know that many people, if any, really saw it coming. He has no prior experience in the SEC, but a pretty good track record at Boise. So we'll see how that goes. Um, more on him later with some recent news, obviously. But then just north, Tennessee, letting go of Jeremy Pruitt. I could do a whole podcast on that whole saga. Um, long story short, refresher, Pruitt had serious struggles at Tennessee. He was recruiting pretty well. He had the full support of Phil Fulmer, the athletic director, kind of doubled down on him and made him his guy and everything. And when the results were not turning out, then lots of things happened up in up in Knoxville. Long story short, the recruiting violations started to come down on him. There were rumors he was handing out just McDonald's bags full of cash blatantly to players. Pretty bizarre story. He ended up saying that Tennessee fabricated and planted staffers to snitch on him in order to fire him for cause, therefore saving their butts from the huge buyout. Not sure what that number would have been, but I'm sure it would have been gigantic. And a lawsuit was struck up right after his firing. Nothing has come of that. So he's kind of gone quietly into the night. Wouldn't surprise me or probably anybody to see him end up back on Alabama's staff where he was as a defensive coordinator under Saban before Tennessee hired him as the head coach. So he'll probably have a year or two to kind of think about how everything went in Knoxville. It's pretty controversial and dramatic issue just you know how bizarre it was when he got let go from there but um yeah they got Josh Heupel from UCF his hiring came just after Tennessee hired UCF's athletic director Danny White so Danny White went back to the school where he was previously and got his guy so Heupel is in he's supposed to be able to run a pretty high octane offense so even if It takes a couple years for Tennessee to get moving in the right direction. I think they should be able to put up some points relatively quickly here with Heupel, which at least, you know, for the fans, that's been the main struggle, just the quarterback and the offense or the lack thereof over the past several years. So Tennessee might be a little bit more entertaining of a team to watch if they're putting up a lot of points, even if they don't win a whole lot of ball games. So... It'll be an interesting progression up on Rocky Top. We'll we'll keep an eye on that as the season goes along. But kind of a unique situation there with hiring the athletic director from UCF and then now ending up with the UCF head coach. So Prude and Fulmer out, Danny White and Heupel in. New new beginning once again for the first first time or what the fourth or fifth time in past twelve years up on Rocky Top. So. I think they're ready for a little consistency. South Carolina, Will Muschamp was fired yet again from an SEC head coaching gig. Shane Beamer from Oklahoma was hired as the head coach. He's, of course, the son of Frank Beamer. So I think they're all pretty happy with that hire. You know, South Carolina has been pretty down and out for quite a while now, so it's probably going to take a few years to right that ship to get him back to, you know, consistent eight, nine wins a season, which I think is a pretty realistic 
ceiling for them to be happy with. Um, Vandy also in the three SEC East coaching changes. Derek Mason was let go, who is now Auburn's defensive coordinator, and they hired Clark Lee. I think it's Clark Lee. Uh, is his last name how you say that? From Notre Dame, their defensive coordinator. Clark is a Vandy alumni, so people are thinking that that might help him out, kind of understanding the challenges of just being Vanderbilt in the SEC with the academic limitations they have, just with, you know, all of their troubles they get competing with the hardest conference in college football year in and year out. So maybe maybe since he is familiar with those troubles as a player, he'll be able to figure out a formula as a head coach, kind of like James Franklin did a few years ago, get them to be competitive, even if that doesn't mean for the division or anything, just better than they have been. I've always liked Mason a lot. He seems like a really great guy. I think he should be a pretty solid hire for Auburn's defensive coordinator, but fortunately just wasn't able to get get it done with the amount of wins. So he'll be uh, down on the planes and more in him along with Harson in a little bit too. Now getting elsewhere around the country, uh, Arizona fired Kevin Sumlin. He just did not have a good tenure there as well as he did for a few years there at Texas A&M. He just could never get the ball rolling at Arizona. They've been just really down and out. They got absolutely pounced in some games last season. So they definitely needed to change. They got Jed Fish from the, I'm not sure where he was last. He's He was an assistant on both the Rams and the Patriots. So he never got up to the coordinator level in the NFL, but he's obviously worked under a pr- couple of pretty brilliant minds under McVay and Belichick. So... I believe they should, you know, hopefully have a new offensive philosophy in Tucson soon and just have some sort of life invigorated back into that program because they've been pretty solid in years past, but someone just, it just was not a good fit there. Illinois, they fired Lovey Smith. They got Brett Bielema. <laughs> And he's been obviously kind of all over the place. He did, he went 68 and 24 as a head coach at Wisconsin. He was super successful up there in Madison. Came to the SEC, guns a blazing at Arkansas. Called out Nick Saban before he had ever coached a game in the league, and obviously that did not go well. He could not back up his talk in the press conferences, and that was really you know after the Petrino incident and then Bielema, Arkansas has just never really been the same since then. They showed a little bit of life last year and hopefully they can pick it up on a more consistent basis going forward. But yeah, Bielema and Arkansas, that was a pretty, pretty dark period for the Hogs. However, maybe he'll have some success being back in the Big Ten where he was so successful previously in his career. Um, you know, Illinois, they don't have a lot of talent. We'll talk about them in a little bit with their week zero game coming up here, but it'll be interesting to see if Bielema over the next few years can kind of get his mojo back being in the big 10. So we'll see. Lastly, Texas letting go of Tom Herman. Um, that was a pretty volatile tenure there. Just wasn't able to live up to any of the hype, obviously, after he did so well at Houston and he went, they went and got Steve Sarkeesian from Alabama. So, you know, kind of yet another hire. It's been very plentiful, the amount of head coaches the Longhorns have had ever since Mac Brown's tenure came to an end. But um, Sark, 
you know, he ran one of the best offenses in college football history last year in Tuscaloosa. Obviously, Texas isn't going to have that much talent, but he should have no problem at all getting top 10 recruiting classes in there year in, year out. So will he get it, get Texas up to their standards this year? Probably not. It'll be interesting to see what the offense looks like. But, um, you know, after a couple recruiting classes, seeing how well his offense has run in the past, and I think now that he's kind of matured and come a long way from his off-the-field issues when he was head coach at Washington and USC, kind of mentoring under Saban for a while. He'll, uh, there's no reason he shouldn't get the horns to be playoff contenders and, you know, top 10, top 5 every single year. It's really been pretty sad for them how they can recruit so well. They haven't been able to de- develop the talent. You think about Oklahoma, who's obviously a college football blue blood, but they just have first-round draft picks all over the field every year, including Heisman Trophy winners, first overall draft picks. And when it comes down to it, you know, I guess this might be a controversial opinion because of the results, but you just feel like Texas has a higher ceiling somehow than Oklahoma if they can just get a perennial head coach in there and figure it out finally. So, I mean, I like Sark as much as anybody how could you not after last year? But it'll be interesting to see how he handles his own program yet again. And even though I'm not a big fan of Texas, I'm rooting for the guy. So hopefully he can he can figure out there in Austin. All right, moving on from the early offseason, all the coaching changes to the summer when things really heated up. College football playoff expansion. This came out in early June. Um, nothing is officially official yet, but it basically is it was confusing reading back on all the reports from a couple months ago but essentially we're going from four teams to 12 teams Uh, I was not sure how to feel about this at first I'll get more into uh, my personal kind of turnaround on the whole situation here in a little bit but it will give the top four seeds to conference winners that will be automatic bids So at the time this came out, it seems like, okay, four of the top five conferences will get the automatic bid to be in a top four. You get a buy now that the Big 12 is all but dead. seems like it'll just be the winner from the SEC, ACC, Pac-12, and Big 10 basically every year unless we have an extreme outlier from the American Conference or a Boise State type team or somewhere like someone like that just you know and maybe a down year for the Pac-12 or ACC you could see that happening but for the most part it'll be those four of the five remaining power five conferences that'll actually exist in a couple years more on the Big 12 later um So this is kind of what the Pac-12 and the Big 12 wanted with the automatic bids. Of course, there were a lot of different proposals on playoff expansion. How are we going to expand it? It felt inevitable for quite a while because, you know, understandably, people are pretty bored of seeing the same four to five teams year in, year out, especially the Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State core, plus Notre Dame, Oklahoma, Georgia, whichever one of them, LSU step up for the the year. It's almost like musical chairs filling in that fourth spot. But, you know, I get it. Even as a, as a Bama fan, it's understandable that watching those same four teams year in, year out, most other teams just kind of know from week one that they don't even have a shot. So that's just not good for the sport as a whole. It's not good for, you know, just gaining natural interest and growing the 
growing the crowd participation at a time where it feels like that's, you know, possibly waning. But I think the Pac-12 and the Big 12, given that they were usually the ones getting left out of the four-team playoff when there, you know, was an odd man out between the two of them, they kind of liked the idea of an automatic bid for a conference winner. Myself, I never prefer that, even in 12-team playoff. I still don't really like that just because, you know, some years maybe the Pac-12 winner could be ranked 17th in the country. And, you know, whoever just wins that one game, what if there's a weird injury, team could get hot for a night. Does the 17th-ranked team in the country deserve to have, you know, an automatic buy in the event that a group of five team conference, you know, winner doesn't, really rank highly that year no I don't think so but it's what's going to happen and you know I don't hate the fact that conference championship games will still have some meaning to them because that buy will be a big deal with just more games across the board and everybody's beat up by that time of year anyway so I don't love the idea of a team getting in you know automatically just because they won a super weak conference any given year. However, conference championship games are, you know, it's one of the best Saturdays of the entire fall. And I feel like they've just, you know, with a bigger playoff, they're naturally going to mean less. So hopefully that helps them kind of keep some importance to them. The rest of the spots, 5 through 12, are at large, which will get really interesting. Um, the first round, since the top four teams get a bye, the seeds from 5 to 12, so 5 versus 12, 6 versus 11, so on and so forth, will play each other with the higher seed hosting on campus. You know, outside, I mean, this will probably be the coolest part about the entire playoff expansion, getting to host it on campus. It's a damn shame that the semifinals, so the round after the first round where the top four seeds are playing, will not be hosted on campuses. They're going to be on neutral sites as well, which, you know, uh, there are a few times I've seen the country unite over the past few years as much as we did over the fact that nobody wants the quarterfinal game to be hosted at a neutral site. We have enough of those, you know, it's cool to have a season opener there. It's cool for the conference championship, obviously the national championship, but it's just, you know, when you're doing a season opener in Atlanta and then the conference, or you know, say you open the season in Dallas, like a lot of SEC teams do, and then you play for the conference championship in Atlanta, and then you get a top four bid, and that's three more neutral side games, then you're playing five games in neutral stadiums, and that's just starting to feel like some type of corporate NFL shit, and that's just not what college should be about. Um, you know, obviously it's all about the money the TV contracts and the bowl, the bowl sites that already have their obligations lined up with all these conferences. They don't really give a damn about the purity of the sport. So we'll be playing quarterfinals in Jerry World and in Santa Clara and, you know, wherever else. So Indianapolis, I'm sure that'll be just absolutely thrilling when the stadium is 60% full for a number two versus number seven game. But, you know, People only have so much money. Maybe this will make it easier for fans who might not be able to afford a playoff game anyway, get to a game. But if you're having financial issues and traveling halfway across the country to see 
a football game, you know, probably isn't in the picture in the first place. So that's really disappointing. It'd be nice if we could get at least the semifinals at home, because then if you get a top four seed, it's like, great, you get a bye, but you don't get to host a home game. And that's just kind of ludicrous, considering that the five through eight seeds will. But it is what it is. Maybe someday down the road that'll change. We'll just have to wait it out and see. Maybe bad enough attendance and bad enough television optics will eventually push the conferences to host it on campus one day for the for the quarterfinals. So we'll see. But uh, anyway, oh yeah, one of their other, uh, and I was looking for this quote and couldn't find it, but I remember this is, you know, more or less what one of the college football playoff big wigs said. He said, talking about why the quarterfinals wouldn't be hosted on campus. And he said, well, you know, nobody really wants to see Florida play at Michigan State and East Lansing in January. Uh, yeah, we do. Everyone would love to see that. Like, everyone loves the NFL playoffs. Snow football, cold football is the best football to be watching on television and I've never been to a game that cold myself but I've heard from my uh Packers co-workers that it's it's quite the time so you know it's just a sorry excuse he just couldn't say oh it's all about the money we just have to go with the tv contracts and the bowl agreements we already have but you know obviously watching you know uh Georgia at Wisconsin or something in a number seven versus number 10 game in early January in Madison would be absolutely electric on the level of a NFL playoff game in Green Bay or Chicago or wherever it may be. So I don't know anybody, you know, in the country that wouldn't like to see that, but that was their little piss poor argument they tried to slide by on, which I found a little bit humorous myself. So Kind of looking back on the whole thing, what, you know, when I started to kind of soak this in after a few days of getting the news that we were going to 12 teams from four, it was, at first, I wasn't sure how I felt about it. I was like, I don't know how I feel about a three-win team getting into the playoff and having the shot for a national championship, but you just kind of have to look through it, look at it through a different lens this, you know, I th- I feel like the main critique, if you're not a fan of one of the tops teams, is, oh, like, college football is getting kind of boring. It's just the same teams every year, which is fair. And, you know, getting off my high horse, I totally get that. So the 12-team playoff, this solves that. It gives so many teams a chance. It gives them life deep into the season. It'll give the fan bases so much more reason to stay invested and, you know, go to the games, take time out of your day to watch the games and keep up throughout the week for, you know, articles and podcasts like this. And it just it just gives people a damn chance. And even if you're the, you know, a 12 seed Iowa or something and you kind of know, you know, you probably can't hang with the big boys, just making it to the playoff. And, you know, I mean you never know what could happen, especially when football is just, you know, one game, one game and you advance. It just, it extends your, the life of your season for so long because otherwise it's like you lose two games and, you know, you know that your chance at a national championship is done now. And, you know, in some cases, even one game, which is a bit ludicrous when we're talking about 18, 19 year olds. So I get it. Uh, probably the coolest part is that it gives the group of five an actual chance. Of course, 
now with everything that's happened in the past week. Um, who knows what the group of five is going to look like going forward. But there have been teams in the past, you know, obviously Boise State from the 2000s and really the past couple of decades, but especially when they had those really dominant teams that would go to the BCS games, the Fiesta Bowl team, you know, it gives that team a chance to be an actual Cinderella. It's not just, oh, just win a New Year's Six Bowl game, which is great and a huge accomplishment for a program like that, but it gives them an actual chance to go up against the big boys when everything is on the line and see what they got. So, you know, UCF from 2017, as annoying as that whole thing was, you know, if you go undefeated and you play a decently respectable schedule, then you ought to have the chance, you know, Coastal from last year, Cincinnati would have snuck into the playoffs. So I think it's cool that, I mean, I can just imagine being a fan of one of those group of five teams that it probably just doesn't even feel like you're in the same league because when it when it comes to winning a national championship, you're not. You're, you know, obviously lesser than in the eyes of the playoff committee. And while strength of schedule should absolutely matter, 12 teams will give them a chance to go up against the big boys. And, you know, they won't they won't get wins too often, probably. But every now and then they will. And it'll be the biggest win in program history. It'll be great for all the neutral viewers. Embarrassing for the team that loses. But, hey. It'll uh, it'll be good for the sport as a whole, especially when you look at it through the national lens. So lastly, the thing that I like the most about the expanded playoff is that it will, I, I believe it will cause the regular season to be more competitive and more fun and as a result, less consequential. But I think now, you know, SEC teams, you have such a grueling SEC schedule. Some teams choose to have difficult uh, out-of-conference, non-conference games in the regular season. Obviously, I mean, I feel like this has gotten more and more common uh, through recent years, but maybe that's just kind of me growing up and paying attention more. But regardless, now teams won't be scared to schedule a Georgia-Clemson type of game in their non-conference because they know like, Hey, we can lose one game. We can lose two games. And if it's to good teams and we play well and don't just get absolutely leveled, then we're still going to be able to make it in the playoff. Now it's like, you know, you have one loss even to a very good team. And then you just have to start scoreboard watching for the rest of the season and hope that you kind of luck out and other teams lose ahead of you in order to get in. And, you know, you shouldn't be penalized for having an extremely competitive season. And if you go 11 and one and lose to a good team and say, don't win your conference championship, then, you know, that's probably good enough to play for the national championship. When you think about everyone loves the NFL, myself included, but you know, there's teams with a 500 record that get the chance to play for the Super Bowl, And no one really complains about that. In fact, when a team like that, like the giants beating the undefeated Pats does go the distance and pull off the seemingly impossible everybody loves it that isn't a Pats fan so you know I think I think this in addition to all of the conference stuff we're going to get to here in a minute uh, will cause for more interesting regular season matchups we'll have less you know random weekends in September where there's like only one decently good game and everyone's just kind of twiddling their thumbs waiting for conference play to pick up and whatnot so 
I think as a whole, it'll make the regular season more interesting. It'll make just the top 25 as a, you know, as a whole more general, more general, more interesting. And it'll just give teams and fan bases life and opportunity that would have been squished out in September, you know, under the four-team playoff format. So I don't know when this is going to get um, implemented. It could be, I forget when the four-team, sorry, I should have looked that up, four-team playoff uh, expires. But now there's talks with this new Big Ten, Pac-12, ACC alliance that they're going to try to postpone the implementation of the expansion. So we'll just have to see about that. We definitely have the four teams for a couple more years. So just talking about the 12 team this much kind of makes me feel like it should be here right here right now. And I'm excited for when it is here because it'll, it'll be good for the sport as a whole. All right. Moving right along to name, image, and likeness, a.k.a. NIL. This was implemented on July 1st at midnight for some, like Bo Nix, who wasted no time in posting his Milo's Sweet Tea ad on Instagram, literally as the clock hit midnight. He was uh, ready to start earning those checks, understandably so, over the table at least. This was long overdue, and it's just kind of legitimizing what you know, everyone and their brother has been knowing that's been going on in college athletics for forever, especially in football with paying players. Now companies can have them paid legally over the table for their sponsorships and uh, endorsements and whatnot. So with social media, this just opened the floodgates and, you know, really that first couple of days, it was just Every few tweets you would see was a new athlete getting a deal and sponsoring whatever company. So this is obviously great for the players, long overdue, and really entertaining for the fans. It's been kind of fun to watch, you know, what athletes and what companies have teamed up. Some of it's been, you know, seriously profitable. Some of it's been helping smaller local businesses and whatnot. The long-term implications of this are still yet to be seen, and I'm not going to pretend with y'all like I really even have much foresight into how it's going to play out, you know, long-term. So, uh, smaller school, you know, who will it benefit the most? Smaller schools with less resources to begin with, aka schools that couldn't cut big checks like Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, all those type schools that, you know, probably just have more or less unlimited resources. If they need to go get a crew, pay him X amount of dollars to persuade him and the family, then it's going to happen if it's going to make the team that much better. Um, You know, so smaller schools could benefit from saying, hey, like, look, you know, even though we're not a huge marquee program, our guys still have you know, deals with the car dealerships and, you know, whatever local businesses in the area. But then you got big dogs like Saban when he was speaking uh, at some some convention for Texas high school coaches, throwing out the fact, or we assume it's a fact, I believe him, but he said that Bryce Young, Alabama's soon-to-be starting quarterback, has earned already $800,000 through NIL deals, and the dude hasn't even started a game. So while smaller teams can say, hey, look, you know, kind of make it more known, 
publicly that athletes, like even if you come here, stay in your hometown or home state, maybe go to a school like Mississippi State, for example, instead of Alabama, if you're getting recruited by both, like, look, you can still drive a Ford truck from the dealership. You can still, you know, get a sponsorship with XYZ restaurant, get some cash coming in. And, you know, maybe that'll be an advantage for the smaller schools getting, you know, targets that are looking at, you know, all sorts of different levels of programs. However, you have Saban, now he can just throw out the dollar amounts that his players are getting instead of having to keep it, you know, kind of hush-hush beforehand. So, you know, who knows? I mean, this is obviously benefiting the players more, and I guess companies for getting to advertise more better than, you know, anybody else. But just as far as the programs go, it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out, you know, in the long haul. So... I don't really know who it's going to advantage more or less, but um, it'll be it'll be fascinating to watch. So, more on a fun side, I was just kind of jotting down some entertaining deals that I've seen come up over the top uh, or over the past couple months. Obviously, the Bo Nix <laughs> Milo's Instagram at Big Night was pretty funny. He literally didn't waste a single minute before he posted that and started getting the dollars coming in. Miami's entire roster got sponsored by the American Top Tim MMA gym. I guess the the owner's a huge Hurricanes fan, and he's essentially just, you know, putting the roster on payroll, which a lot of people are concerned about that type of thing, too. Is it going to be like a salary situation for these players? You know, maybe. I don't know. Some big schools that have, you know, such such powerful alumni bases like Miami and I mean Miami's not even a big school per se but the, it is a big program and people care a lot about their success getting back to the glory days so this gym was the first first one to just say hey we're paying not just the star players you know not just the future NFL guys but we're paying the entire roster on the team I don't know if anybody else any other teams have had a situation like that come up yet but Miami was certainly the first Um, this one, everybody's kind of saw coming, but everybody, everyone was excited to see what the offensive linemen across the country, what type of food deals that they would strike up as a unit. The Notre Dame unit got a pizza deal with the restaurant in town, Arkansas and Wisconsin both seem very fitting. They got, they got endorsement deals with barbecue restaurants and Fayetteville and Madison respectively. So it's kind of cool seeing the... The entire, you know, not just the starters either, the entire offensive line unit, you know, standing out in front of some little rinky-dink barbecue joint, probably all you can eat whenever you want to eat it, just in, you know, in return for posting a couple Instagrams and wearing their shirt around some. So that's, uh, (laughs) everyone kind of saw that one coming, but it, it was, it was fun. And then as of late, it seems like the chicken restaurants have been out in full force, specifically the kind of fast food tender places in the South. Uh, Spencer Spencer Rattler, the OU quarterback, of course, got sponsored by Canes. Uh, Sam Howell from North Carolina and DJ Ugalele, I believe it is, got sponsored by Bojangles. And JT Daniels at Georgia got sponsored by Zaxby's. So 
all three of those uh, companies. If you're listening, want to sponsor a podcast, this boy is a big fan of the fast food tender business. So find my info, please. Kayvon Thibodeau, the prob, not probable, probably the first defensive player taken in the upcoming draft, possible first overall draft pick from Oregon. Got big, big deals with United Airlines and predictably Nike being in Eugene. So he's definitely raking it in. I couldn't find a dollar amount for him, but, you know, two companies that big. Good Lord. And last but certainly not least, my biased favorite, Gaquinsky Kool-Aid McKinstry signed a deal with Kool-Aid. So that was kind of kind of cool and funny to see him kind of posting the the collabs with the Kool-Aid man cartoon on on Twitter and everything. So that was uh that one was too easy, but I'm glad I'm glad Kool-Aid stepped to the, up to the plate and linked up with Kool-Aid. So all that happened through mid-July and it felt like a busy off-season as is. And then the hammer dropped. Texas and Oklahoma are to join the SEC by 2025. This came with basically no warning during the SEC media days, funnily during SEC or not Texas A&M's uh, conference with Jimbo, which uh, Texas A&M, that's been a kind of funny development to watch them process this whole thing with Texas. But anyway, these two teams are joining the Southeastern Conference Two of the biggest brands in college football coming to the biggest conference already. It really just kind of shattered the landscape of the sport. Um, it's another one of these things like the NIL where it's just so much to process all at once. This was, we knew the NIL was coming. This came as such a surprise. Um, you know, it's still, still kind of trying to wrap your head around it, even though now we've known for about a month that this is going to be happening. So, you know. Traditionally, I think, especially culturally, I think Oklahoma is a pretty good fit for the SEC. I've got some personal uh, bias against the Longhorns, so I think they're, you know, a lot of the times act a little too big for their britches, to put it kindly, and I'm not too thrilled about their ego joining an already, you know, very ego-heavy conference, but it is what it is. It's all about the money, not feelings. So they will bring enormous profits to the SEC with the big ESPN deal coming up here in a couple of years when the SEC transitions away from CBS. It's just going to make for an absolute monster conference and the rest of the college football landscape was kind of looking at the SEC like, you know, what are you doing? Didn't tell us about any of this, understandably so. Um, especially the... Big 12 was just blindsided and floored by this and, you know, more on the future of that conference to to come, but there probably isn't one. So much like when Texas A&M and Missouri joined the conference, this is just all about expanding the footprint. Now that TV is getting so weird with, you know, cable going away, streaming going up, I'm not really sure how they're allocating the t- the TV um, numbers and funds now, but or I know they al- they allocate the funds evenly that the conference gets and the revenue sharing. But just with you know back ten years ago when A and M and Missouri were joining was kind of the height of cable. Um, it was right 
as or before all of these big streaming companies were kind of coming into their own. And Texas and Missouri were two states where the SEC was not currently at. Geographically, it seemed like a bit of a reach. Culturally, especially Missouri, I mean, A&M is very unique as well. But myself and a lot of other people were like, well, why wouldn't we just try to get, you know, Florida State or Clemson? Someone like that. North Carolina. But that's because, well, North Carolina, not a good example, but Clemson and Florida State, the SEC is already present in those two states. So they can gain a lot more viewership by going into Texas and Missouri, where we didn't have any teams previously. So kind of the same situation now with Texas and Oklahoma. And on top of that, you just get two monster, monster brands anyway. Obviously, Texas A&M is in Texas, but just the Texas fan base is such a gigantic nationwide force, and Oklahoma is a totally new state. So that all those factors made them appealing for the SEC to say yes. The Big 12 has been kind of scrambling 10 years ago. Obviously, Texas A&M and Missouri dipped out to go to the SEC. They had to kind of shuffle around at West Virginia, which has already always just been a really weird fit the past decade in the Big 12. And, you know, them in the Pac-12 kind of seem like the two conferences that have just been kind of holding on for dear life. And now it's clear that the Pac-12 is going to outlast the Big 12. Um, you know, they're done. I mean, we're going to get more into that here with the Alliance. But uh, to keep it on the SEC, there's obviously now when Texas and Oklahoma arrive that has to happen by 2025 based on the agreement with those two schools and conference but most people believe it'll happen much sooner than that um you know there are going to be their harsh feelings it's going to be interesting to watch those two go to opposing fan bases and stuff it's probably going to be pretty uh pretty emotional for the teams that are kind of on the down and out right now the texas techs the Kansas states of the world. It's just a really tough situation for all of those schools. And it's pretty sad, honestly, but you know, it, Texas and Oklahoma just got out while they, while they could. And they saw this big new TV contract going to the sec and said, let's, let's get in on it. Now there's going to be 16 teams in the sec. Wouldn't be surprising to see the big 12 split up and, you know, kind of shuffled the rest of the teams to the other remaining conferences so that there are eventually four conferences of 16 teams instead of five of approximately 12 like we've had the past forever, Um, or at least, you know, since I've been alive in the 90s. But um, with the SEC having 16 teams and just the geography of adding two teams that are so far west compared to the rest of the conference, that kind of makes one wonder what is the SEC going to look like divisionally because it it could still be the east and the west but it probably won't be it as we know it a lot of people have thrown around the idea of pods 14 pods in the SEC where you play the other three teams in your pod every single year and then just kind of rotate the others in a round robin fashion and This would, you know, with the increase uh, to 16 teams, 
surely the SEC is going to go to a nine-team conference schedule, which has been a talking point for a long time. SEC currently only plays eight, so there's four non-conference games every year. So with the, and yeah, teams still and cross cross division teams still barely play each other in the regular season. Alabama's going to Gainesville this year for the first time in a decade, and you know nobody really likes that. If you're in the same conference as somebody, you should play at their stadium more than once every ten years. And now it would be probably more like once every twelve years with a couple more teams in the mix, but. With this, with a nine-team conference schedule broken out, the conference broken out into four pods, it uh, it could be interesting and it would look a lot different than we currently have, but one that I either saw thrown around on the internet, possibly, or just kind of drafted up myself quickly, mostly focused on geography while also trying to maintain traditional rivalries, would have... A conference where you can th- kind of think of the eastern teams like Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, and Kentucky could be a pod. The next pod, a little more central, would be Alabama, Auburn, Tennessee, and Vandy. You get the Alabama, Tennessee teams together. The next pod, still moving west, you would have Arkansas, LSU, Ole Miss, and Mississippi State. And then the final pod, which would kind of be like an old Southwest Conference or Union, would be Texas, Oklahoma, Texas A&M, and Missouri. And I think that one would be really interesting because obviously you're going to get the Texas-Texas A&M back, game back. Both of those schools have been so bitchy about it the past few years, ever since Texas A&M left, about not, you know, sometimes this team wants to play and the other team doesn't and vice versa and like... You know, they just need to get over it. It's a great rivalry. All of college football wants to see that game played every year. So hopefully, no matter what the SEC does, they would make that happen. But there's a thousand different ways you could chop up four teams into four different pods. So who knows what could end up happening. But that one, you're still going to have Georgia-Florida every year. You still have the Iron Bowl every year. You still have the Egg Bowl every year. You're going to have the Red River rivalry every year. You're obviously going to have to split up some, you know, traditional matchups, most likely, although you could still have permanent crossover games like Auburn, Georgia, Alabama, LSU, which I'm sure the league would do whatever they can to keep games like that on the yearly schedule. But I don't know. It's an interesting kind of an interesting exercise to go through and even just, you know, make your own. It was easy to look on when this was all happening, every, every college football journalist and personality on Twitter kind of had their own little version of the four team pod. And I went down and wrote a couple myself and it was fun just to kind of mix and match and make up some new permanent matchups, especially with the the new teams and kind of reviving that old Southwest conference that, uh, that hasn't been around in quite some time. Second part of the conference realignment all came out today, which was fun as I was about to record this and realized I had about an hour of extra prep to do on all these notes. So disclaimer, I'm not totally well-versed on this whole alliance thing yet. It was kind of a lot to process at the last, last minute today, but the basic gist of it is that the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the ACC all got freaked out by Texas and Oklahoma joining the SEC, understandably so. The Big 12 is the odd man out in this situation. So these three conferences, Big 10, Pac-12, ACC, are essentially 
agreeing on a future formal agreement to work together, form this quote unquote alliance. And they're basically going to try to work together on the college football expansion details on all different sorts of NCAA issues and non-conference scheduling and, you know, TV deals. So a lot to take in their formal agreement. I skimmed over that. Um, you know, they were, they were trying to make it all about academics and social equality. And Rosillo quote tweeted it earlier today and said it's, it's laughable how, you know, how few of these reasons are the real reasons that they're actually doing this whole alliance thing. And, you know, it's all about the money. They didn't want to get left behind. The SEC kind of took its future into its own hands, especially with how weak the NCAA has been getting over the past few years and especially months with the NIL the SEC said, SEC said you know we'll just handle this on our own we can strike the deal with the ESPNs of the world and we'll be fine especially if we can grab the horns and the Sooners so the big twin big 10 Pac-12 and ACC the alliance they said okay well we have to make our move before we get left in the dust like the big 12 so the big 10 and the Pac-12 have had a long relationship uh, dating back to, I don't know, but whenever the Rose Bowl was started being played between the traditional Big Ten and Pac-12 matchup, and they're also both partners with Fox on just their for their you know normal Saturday big noon big noon Saturday TV contracts. So they've kind of had a working relationship in the past, and the new ACC commissioner Jim Phillips worked for the Big Ten before he got to the ACC for over 10 years. So there's a lot of collaboration that these conferences have had in the past. It's nothing really new, although there has obviously been nothing this formal and public that has ever happened before. So like I said, this kind of covers their asses after the SEC made their move. Now they have more control of their future. This alliance across the three conferences includes 41 different universities so that's a pretty pretty gigantic number um so they're gonna have a lot of power especially with the big 10 kind of being the the centerpiece of this whole thing because i don't think they were ever terribly worried about the whole conference shifting thing and everything obviously there's always some more to gain as you saw last month with the sec but they're going to be able to work together and uh have more control of their future and leave less in the NCAA's court. Speaking of the NCAA, one of the reasons that I think these conferences have been trying to take more into their own hands and get away from the NCAA is because the NCAA obviously has looked really weak the past few months with the NIL coming out. Everyone's realizing like, okay, they put on a great basketball tournament. What else is it that we they really do? Why do we still really answer to them? The NCAA seems to be in crisis mode, and they're having a constitutional convention in November. So who knows what the NCAA is going to look like here in a few months, especially in a few years down the road. Uh, but these conferences seem to be, you know, kind of taking matters into their own hands. And unfortunately, that means the Big 12 is the odd man out. Ever since the realignment 10 years ago, uh, 
it always kind of felt to me like eventually we would get to four conferences of, you know, 16 or so teams instead of the five that we've always had in the Power Five. And that meant there had to be an odd man out. The Pac-12 didn't look good for a while, but I think they might have kind of squeaked out of this one. So the Big 12, it was funny. The ACC commissioner, Jim Phillips, I was talking about earlier, he said, quote, we want the Big 12 to do well, Uh, you know, not not really, because if you could have included them, but the Big 12, they just, without Texas and Oklahoma, you know, they don't have nearly as much to bring to the table, even though, you know, you have a school like Kansas, that's a blue blood in basketball. Kansas football still brings in more profits than Kansas basketball, which is crazy to think about, but it's true. That's just that TV contract money. And, you know, without Texas and Oklahoma, you just have a bunch of Kansas States and, you know, TCU and Baylor. And while they're fine programs, they're not they're not really exciting anybody. They're not going to be boosting anybody's TV numbers enough to really make them eager to invite them to their conference. So the uh, the whole conference realignment thing has just been a total total whirlwind the past couple months or past month, but it's uh, especially hard to comprehend all of this alliance news just having released literally today. So we'll kind of follow that more as it progresses throughout the season and I mean more so years to come it's going to be a while before these teams in the big big 10 pac 12 and ACC are scheduling each other contractually on a regular season basis so they'll probably end up playing you know probably one fewer conference games in exchange for having a permanent team from the other two conferences on their schedule, not a permanent team as in you only play the same team every year, but, you know, I mean, possibly like a USC, Ohio State type of matchup, Oregon, Clemson, who wouldn't want to see that? But, um, you know, just one team from the other conferences every year to replace the the one or two conference in-conference games that you might have to drop. So that'll take some shaking out with the TV t- details and whatnot, but it'll really create some sexier matchups, you know, especially with the the top half of the conferences going at each other. So I don't see it taking probably more than a season or two once they get this thing formally signed. So, and that kind of goes back to what we were saying about the playoff expansion, you know, I mean, it's going to be more beneficial for teams to play, harder schedules. You're not going to be scared about losing one or two games and not getting the chance to play for a national championship. Now, if you lose to, you know, if you're USC and you lose to Oregon and Ohio State in the same season, like then you go 10 and two and look really good in your losses, then, you know, you'll still probably get the chance to slide into the top 12 when the season's over. So that could line up really nicely with the whole, the whole playoff you know, regular season becoming more interesting. Hopefully that's the case, but a lot more to come with the Alliance, with the SEC. We'll be following that as it, as it goes along this year, but yeah, definitely a lot to wrap your head around. The last topic of our uh, off season recap, everybody's favorite coronavirus. So just quickly, not going to get too deep into this or anything because everyone sees too much of it on their feeds and their daily life anyway, but it has to be said because it's going to be, you know, it's a huge part of last season. 
this offseason and this upcoming season. So it's just the world we're in right now. The NCAA has some protocols that are relevant to all fall sports, not just football, even though that's obviously what we'll be focusing on. So um, the NCAA recommended not testing vaccinated players unless they're symptomatic. That includes if they have close contact with someone who tested positive for COVID, if the vaccinated player isn't, um, isn't experiencing symptoms, then they don't have to get tested. So there's going to be a lot less disruption since the majority of teams are vaccinated now. For the unvaccinated players, which obviously will vary quite a bit from team to team, they're going to have to get tested three times a week. They're going to have more serious mask protocols and stuff. I didn't read too much into that. Um, when it comes to the conferences, they're obviously taking stuff a couple steps further than the generic broad NCAA rules. So all four of the Power Five, four of the Power Five conferences minus the SEC, have already come out with their formal um, terms for teams that have COVID issues this football season. The SEC is probably going to follow all of this, but there just hasn't been a formal announcement yet. So what? The Pac-12, Big Ten, Big 12, and ACC are saying is that there will not be any rescheduling this year. Last season, all the conferences obviously were on totally different schedules, different amount of games. Some of them, like the SEC, built in a cushion week that ended up everyone needed it uh, to play games that had to be postponed earlier in the season. So there won't be any of that, no rescheduling this year. What will happen is if there's one team that has enough of a COVID issue to where they can't play the game, they have to forfeit against the other team. If both teams happen to have COVID issues the same week, they're not rescheduling or making up the game. It's just going to be a no contest. So they just play one fewer games. They'll have one fewer games on their final record, whereas... If it's one team's fault, one team's fault only, they have to forfeit and give up the loss. Like I said, SEC will probably follow this. Seems to make sense across the board. Fair enough. Uh, the one thing the SEC has been rumored to implement, which really takes it a step further than just forfeiting a game that was never played, is they're going to have some financial penalties for teams that mess up. If... A team has to have a game canceled and it costs the SEC TV money, then the team at fault will lose a portion of the league revenue sharing. So the SEC is really sticking it to them where it hurts. You know, a loss is one thing, but for most teams in the country, you know, one more loss, one fewer win, not really going to make that big of a difference in the long run. However, when you start to dip into people's pocketbooks, then, you know, now we're talking. So SEC is putting the pressure on at the SEC media days. They were pretty adamant about, you know, we're a pro-vaccination conference. You know, we encourage all of our teams to do this, blah, blah, blah. So they're, you know, they're saying if you mess with our money, then we're going to mess with your money. And that'll occur if CBS or ESPN, which are the two networks that host SEC games on Saturdays, if they show less games, that, less SEC football games than are in their agreed upon contract, not sure what exactly each of those numbers, probably about 
nine for CBS, nine or ten. Um, and then ESPN will have quite a bit more with the SEC network and everything. But essentially, if a team causes the SEC to dip below that minimum number of games shown on the network, then it's coming out of their pocket and not the other teams in the league who are following the protocols. So that'll uh, that'll be interesting to watch because the SEC has quite a few teams with quite a bit of variance when it comes to vaccination rates. And obviously... The South is one of the worst places in the country for the spread of the virus, as is. Um, so we'll just, you know, hopefully there's no issues. But if there are and it causes financial concerns, then it's probably not going to be pretty at that particular university. Six out of the 14 SEC teams are at 80% vaccination rate. Ole Miss is the only team at 100%, although Alabama has 100% except for one player. Players obviously not been named, but otherwise UA is at 100%. Uh, there's been quite a bit of brouhaha at Auburn the past week or so. Brian Harson and Derek Mason both contracted coronavirus last week. Not sure. Um, not sure if any other staff members or players got it. One would believe so. Derek Mason said he was vaccinated. Harson has refused to comment, which means probably no. But they came out and both tweeted that they were at home feeling okay, thankfully, although they had very, very different uh, tones about the whole situation. So if Auburn continues to have issues down the road, it'll be kind of interesting to see how that coaching staff, the specifically the head coach Harson and DC Derek Mason kind of kind of coexist with their clearly differences on opinions. Um, <clears throat> there have been teams all over the country that have announced, you know, we're going to require the classic proof of vaccination or a negative test within the past 48, 72 hours, uh, 10 football games this year. Today, this morning, LSU was the first SEC team to announce that obviously stirred up quite a bit of drama on the interwebs, but, um, there have been other teams, I think Oregon, maybe, maybe Notre Dame. I can't remember, but few other teams across the country have done that. And LSU was the first SEC team. As of a couple hours ago, I hadn't seen anything else about SEC teams following in their footsteps, but wouldn't surprise to see some teams do it and some teams elect not to. I know there's some, some states like Alabama and Tennessee have laws that I believe prevent the requirement of vaccination, although the loophole of asking for a negative test instead of a vaccination might allow schools to get around that for entrance into stadiums this fall. Not totally sure, but everyone is definitely planning on having 100% capacity. So the, uh, the way they go about that will probably be different, but hopefully we can, we can keep everything safe this season and have as few COVID interruptions as humanly possible. You know, it's bound to happen with some players and coaches in some, some places, but um, you know, it should be better than last year and just having fans back will be nice. So hopefully everyone can do so in a safe manner. That's everything I got for our off season preview. I did not expect it to go over an hour long, but there was just a lot of shit that happened. So uh, episodes usually won't be this long. Like I said, in the intro episode, I'm kind of thinking about doing, you know, uh, I don't know how long it'll take, probably probably in the 30 to 40 minute range. We'll just have to see 
learning on the fly here, but we're going to be doing probably about the first half of the episode, recapping what happened the week before and the next half of the episode, um, previewing the upcoming week. If I ramble and carry on for too, too long, then might end up splitting it into two different episodes weekly, but we'll see. So now we're going to finish off by previewing the week zero games this this Saturday. We've got a just a fascinating slate, y'all. I, I mean, I, I, I'm having trouble sleeping at night, just getting so excited for these games. We start off the day with uh, Nebraska and Illinois. You know, we've been waiting all off season for this one. Can't wait. And then we have in the afternoon, I believe it is 1.30 or no, 2.30 Central Time, uh, Hawaii at UCLA. And that's it for the Power 5 games. You know, when they started doing this week zero thing a couple weeks ago, or a couple weeks ago, a couple years ago, I believe 2019 was the first year that they did this when they had Florida play Miami in the uh, neutral stadium in Orlando. Even though neither of those teams were great that year, you know, it's not like we're getting a Georgia Clemson type of game, but at least it's too, you know, interesting enough, old school rivals going at it at a neutral neutral site that's going to be pretty hostile. But uh, I guess they thought that game was just too too good, even though it was a pretty boring one at the end, at the end of it. So <clears throat> we're going to start off looking at the, uh, uh, I guess we'll do quickly, we'll go with Hawaii and UCLA. Don't have too much on this one. UCLA is a 17-point favorite, so it shouldn't be too close. It's in the Rose Bowl. This is Chip Kelly's most talented team. His tenure at UCLA has been really underwhelming, and it's just about time to figure this thing out. You know, it's kind of a put-up-or-shut-up year for him. If he can't get it done this year, then it wouldn't be too surprising to see him move on. I wouldn't really say he's on the hot seat quite yet, but drop a couple early games and probably be a long season for the Bruins, but they have decent talent, so they should be totally fine in this game against the Rainbow Warriors. Only thing is they have a really interesting week one game hosting LSU in the Rose Bowl. I actually saw on Twitter today that UCLA is giving out free tickets to any high schooler in their area. I don't know if that means in all of LA or certain districts or what, but they're they're clearly a little worried about LSU fans taking the place over, understandably so. So, uh, yeah, but well, it'll be interesting to see if UCLA gets a slow start. You know, that's a big intimidating matchup against the Tigers next weekend. So. You know, it could be a, a look-ahead situation, even with it being the first game of the year, since LSU is a lot bigger opponent than Hawaii. But based on the spread, UCLA should be fine. So we'll see how Chip Kelly and his squad start off the year. Uh, before that, at 11 a.m. Central, we have the first ever Hummus Tailgate Party Game of the Month, Nebraska at Illinois. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> so both teams are in piss poor shape, Nebraska. This is year four of the Scott Frost experiment. He's coming in to his fourth year as the Cornhuskers head coach with a whopping 12 and 20 record after doing really well at UCF. 
the Illini, they just let go of Lovey Smith, like I said earlier in the show, and they have hired Brett Bielema. So, you know, like we talked about Bielema, maybe he kind of returns to shape in the Big Ten. It's game one, so it'd be kind of asking a lot for him to pull out a W here, but Illinois is a seven-point dog at home, um, you know. Nebraska, they have had NCAA investigations announced in the past week. So it'll be interesting to see what their motivation and energy looks like. Uh, this, the, this Nebraska program, they already just, from everything I read over this offseason, I did not like just the chemistry and the off-the-field vibe I was getting from them. Um, but what happened with the NCAA before, you know, or after I had a bad feeling about their off this off the field kind of vibe and energy, um, they announced that Nebraska was hosting illegal workouts off campus for their football players during the height of the pandemic. This is uh, obviously kind of a concern for public safety and. Uh, Arizona State is the only other team that has been caught doing this, although I believe with them it was a matter of bringing recruits in on illegal visits, but anything in that realm of, you know, practicing, hosting meetings, whatever, illegally, those are the only two two teams that have been busted for it. It'd be surprising if they were the only two, but, you know, I only know what I know. So, um, So Nebraska was hosting workouts off campus during the pandemic when everybody else was at home supposed to have their programs completely shut down and they still sucked last year you know <laughs> so you know it, it was it worth it probably not scott frost like i said 12 and 20 coming into his fourth year the athletic director that hired him is no longer at nebraska so you know he's no longer the new guy's guy and this would have been a really convenient time for them to let him go before the season even started if they were really that close to doing it. I do think he's on the hot seat this year if he doesn't get it done. You know, if he pulls out a 5-7 and, and seven season out of his ass, then it's hard to see them sticking around for more. But, uh, you know, this, this whole COVID and CAA workout investigation is just going to make letting him go that much easier. So, Cornhuskers have a lot of work to do. They only have three players returning on offense. In fact, their best receiver left for Kentucky, of all places. I think Kentucky's going to be pretty good, but that's for another podcast. Uh, Their backup quarterback, who got some playing time last year because they were kind of back and forth with their two guys, transferred to Rice. So if that gives you any state of the once powerhouse Nebraska's current state of the program, it is not good at all. Uh you know, I, it's going to be, it's going to be tough for them. So I, I don't know who I like to win the game. Probably Nebraska. Cause I think they have more talent than Illinois. Illinois has a decent bit coming back. Uh, I think they've got 15 or star- starters returning. Nebraska's defense has a good bit back, so they should be solid. I just don't think they're going to be able to score any points. So I think it'll be a low scoring game, Illinois. I kind of like them with the plus seven, but We'll just, we'll see. It'll be, uh, you know, probably a classic uh, morning Big Ten barn burner, final score of 13 to 7 or something like that. So (laughs) 
Uh, there are a couple, couple more games at night. Uh, I think San Jose State plays, who should be pretty solid this year, and one or two others, but all just kind of smaller teams. No, no Power 5 matchups after the Nebraska and UCLA games. So huh, that's all I got for now. Um, like I said, it usually won't go this long, but just a lot to get to in these couple of episodes, kind of recapping and previewing before the season really gets rolling. So we'll be back uh, probably next Tuesday, next Tuesday or Wednesday with a season preview. We'll kind of go over some conference predictions, maybe some teams that might not win the conferences, but I like for some win totals or just to be kind of fun, fun teams to watch late at night or whatever. So we'll do all that and then start to dig into week one. We've got some good matchups with... Clemson, Georgia, obviously being the marquee that Saturday night, Bama, Miami, Wisconsin, Penn State, LSU, UCLA could be surprisingly, surprisingly close. So it's, uh, it's going to be a good season. <laughs> Thanks to anybody who listened to this whole, whole damn thing, all hour, 12 minutes of it. But yeah, like I said, working out the Kings here. So I'm sorry if any of the audio is clipping or a little bit unsteady. I'm trying my best to try my best to learn, but we'll try to get this out tonight. So it'll be up for everybody in the morning and yeah, y'all take care. Talk to you next week.